Hello, my name is Brooke Bailey, and thank you for joining me at today's podcast, The History of Women's Suffrage in the Pacific Northwest. In this podcast, we talk about the things that need to be discussed, the things that most people are afraid to talk about. What sparked the idea for the topic of this podcast was an image I ran into online. The image says, the women of Washington want the ballot. Why? Because those who obey laws should have something to say about their making, because those who pay taxes to support government officials should be represented in government, and so on. This image shows about five more bullets on why women should be able to vote. And that really sparked the idea of talking about women's suffrage to me. That's something I'm very passionate about. So I thought I would make an awesome podcast. Women's suffrage has had a long repetitive history in the United States, but most specifically in Washington State. Now I will be the first to admit that things have improved significantly, but there is still not complete equality between everyone, which is the goal that women have been fighting toward for centuries. As far as Washington State goes, we're ahead of the curve when it comes to women's rights. Washington was one of the first states to give women the right to vote, and the temperance movement began in Washington before most other states. Now, let's talk about some of the history behind women's suffrage in Washington. In exchange for the difficult life of a pioneer, women in the West generally had greater rights than their counterparts back East. For example, the Federal Organ Donation Act, enacted in 1850, allowed married women to claim half of their husband's land in their own name. As more and more settlers took advantage of this law, the increase in population allowed Washington to split from Oregon Territory in 1853. In 1869, the legislature also passed Washington Territory's first community property law, which gave women joint legal ownership of any property purchased by either themselves or their husbands after marriage. Although they may not have realized it, by strengthening the legal status of women, the legislature was also laying the groundwork for the women's suffrage movement in the territory. Washington didn't become a state until 1889, but there was a push for women's suffrage all the way back in 1854. Seattle's Arthur Denny actually proposed a bill at the inaugural session of the Washington legislature to allow all white women over the age of 18 years to vote. The measure was defeated by one solitary vote. Washington was the first state in the 20th century and the fifth state in the Union to enact women's suffrage. Women's success in Washington helped start the path to victory women took in 1920 when the 19th Amendment was added to the Constitution, which is women winning the right to vote nationally. The Seneca Falls Convention was held in July 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York. At the convention, 200 women and 40 men signed the Declaration of Sentiments and Resolutions and formed the National Women's Suffrage Association. In 1871, Oregon's leading suffragist Abigail Scott Dunaway persuaded Susan B. Anthony, a national leader of the suffrage movement, to join her on a 2,000-mile, two-month lecture tour of Oregon and Washington. Anthony's eloquent addresses to the territorial legislature in Olympia and to a responsive crowd at Seattle's Brown Church galvanized both supporters and opponents. A pro-suffrage newspaper reported of her Seattle lecture, quote, In handling this subject of women's equal right with the sterner sex to the ballot, she brought to bear every salient argument in its favor showing in a conclusive manner that women's condition in life would be really improved and her sphere for usefulness much enlarged when accorded equal privileges with men. 
Miss Anthony makes no pretensions to eloquence or oratory, but she is nevertheless a pleasing and forcible speaker. Quote, weekly intelligence. On the other hand, the Anti-Suffragist Review said, quote, a revolutionist aiming at nothing less than the breaking up of a very the very foundations of a society and the overthrow of every social institution organized for the protection of the altar, the family circle, and the legitimacy of our offspring. Recognizing no religion but self-worship, no God but human reason, no motive to human action but lust. With her teachings of holy writ and the traditions relating to women's social status universally accepted by all civilized society go for nothing. She did not directly and positively broach the licentious social theories which she is known to entertain, but she well knew that they would shock the sensibilities of her audience, but confined her discourse to the one subject of women's suffrage as a means to attain equality of competitive labor. Our sole purpose now is to enter our protest against the inculcation of doctrines which we believe are calculated to degrade and debauch society by demolishing the dividing lines between virtue and vice. It is true that Miss Anthony did not openly advocate free love, but she did worse. Under the guise of defending women against manifest wrongs, she attempted to instill into their minds an utter disregard for all that is right and conversative in present order of society. Our sisters, wives, daughters prepared to accept the teachings of brazen harlots and open advocates of licentiousness, we not, quote, territorial dispatch in Seattle Times. Now both the reviews show bias towards their size, but the, rev but the review written by the anti-suffrage newspaper was clearly closed-minded and afraid of change because the writer openly says that he prefers women in the safety of their home. The writer of this report would clearly prefer that women stay in the home sphere and not leave. The writer also calls Susan B. Anthony a harlot when she was known nationwide for fighting for what she believes. However, among many people, the positive review prevailed. After this, a pa very passionate campaign followed. In 1883, the legislator approved the women's suffrage bill introduced by Representative Joseph Foster from the Duwamish River Valley. On November 22nd, Governor Gordon Newell signed the act into law. Bells rang and guns boomed as suffragists celebrated their victory. Women made up about 38% of the electorate. In the next election, a higher percentage of vo women voted than men. They tipped the balance for law and order and in several communities, including Seattle, voted whiskey hells and brothels out of existence. Legal challenges followed. One emotional argument was that innocent females who served on juries were being exposed to sordid facts of life, such as rape and incest. In 1887, the Washington Territory Supreme Court sided with the plaintiff and ruled that it was unconstitutional for women to serve on juries. When the legislature convened in January 1888, it enacted a new law that granted women the right to vote without the right to serve on juries. Can you imagine living in a period where this is happening? I would be infuriated that men thought they had to protect us and shield us from the truth. We do not live in a world where we have the luxury of wearing our rose-colored glasses. However, the campaign moved ahead and conflict between factions took a backseat. 
Washington suffragists focused on their goal. They rejected offers of national leaders to meddle in the state's campaign. On November 8, 1910, Washington state took male electorate granted women the franchise by an overwhelming majority, breaking a 14-year gridlock in the National Crusade and making Washington the fifth state in the United States where women could vote. Washington's enactment of women's suffrage opened the floodgates for other western states, which quickly followed suit. The counter-strong resistance in the older and more entrenched east and south. The National Crusade escalated its demand for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Washington women remained involved in the National Crusade until the passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution in 1920. Here's a fun little tidbit I found while doing my research. In 1909, the city of Seattle hosted the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition, which featured hundreds of educational exhibits. The exposition also featured a Women's Suffrage Day. State and national suffrage organizations set up booths promoting women's suffrage. One of the enduring icons of the exposition can be found in Volunteer Park. The statue of Secretary of State William H. Seward, unveiled at the exposition in 1909, is now located in the park. It serves as a reminder of the importance of the exposition in Washington history, including its connection to the women's suffrage movement. Volunteer Park is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The story of the Mercer Girls is a well-known one in the Northwest and nationally. Seemingly a matchmaker saga as portrayed in Here Comes the Brides on television. Of course, there were much more to the lives of women and men as well as several families who came on voyages to the West Coast with Asha Mercer in 1864 and 1866. Set against the backdrop of changing roles of women during and after the Civil War, post-Civil War, constitutional voting amendments, and the rising tide of women's rights. The migration had several dimensions related to women's suffrage. Finding the names of the Mercer Girls among those who organized the first territory-wide suffrage association in 1871, worked for eventual territorial suffrage in 1883, advocated for reinstatement in 1888, and continued the campaign to the eventual victory in Washington State in 1910. It is evident that far from being just brides for the lonely men of Washington, several Mercer girls were suffragists as well. While doing my research, I came across an interesting website that I thought I would share. It's a timeline of feminist history in Washington. 1854, the Washington Territorial Legislature defeated a women's suffrage bill by one vote. If it had passed, Washington would have been the first American legislature to give women the vote. Instead, Wyoming received that honor in 1869. 1865. Nettie Craig Asbury, an activist and founder of Tacoma NAACP, was born. 1893. The first woman was hired by the Seattle Police Department. 1910. Women received the vote in Washington. 1912. The first two women were elected to serve in the Washington State Legislature. 1917. Washington State Federation of Colored Women was founded in Spokane. 1923. Washington's first state senator was Reba Hearn, who served from 1923 to 1931. 1965. The first African-American woman to serve as a Washington state legislator. 1970. 
Washington voters approved Referendum 20, which legalized abortion in the early months of pregnancy. 1972. Equal Rights Amendment approved. 1977. The International Women's Year Conference in Ellensburg was a pivotal event to galvanize positions of feminism in Washington. 1978. Seattle became the largest city to desegregate schools without a court order. 1992. First woman U.S. Senator in Washington. 1993. From 1993 to 2004, Washington led the national percentage of elected women to the state legislature. 2017. Seattle elected its first openly gay woman mayor, Jenny Durkan. Thank you for joining me on today's podcast, Women's Suffrage in Washington. Have a good day.